This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello. Today on the Loopcast, I have uh, Cryptia, um, Scott Turbin, and we are discussing the strategy of leaks. So from 2008 to 2018 has been sort of, as a decade has proven, a banner decade for leaks and leaking. So from the different phases of Wikilinks, you have Snowden, you have Chelsea Manning, you have the Podesta emails, you have the Panama Papers, and you have the Paradise Papers. We've seen a lot of leaks for for various reasons. You know, it's nation-state warfare, um, it's ideological, it's political... It's for the lulls. It can be any of those. Um, what is yet to be discussed in, in sort of public forums or in, in doing analysis, at least as, as far as we've been been able to look for it, there hasn't been sort of this top-level discussion of, you know, where do we fit leaks into a strategic picture? Are leaks themselves strategic? You know, what is, what is the top view in the you know, the top view consideration of leaks and, and leaking. So today, Cryptia uh, is going to help me sort of discuss this and, and maybe come up with a better answer than I don't know. Um, so let's start. Um, I want to start off with just like a very simple question, which is when we discuss what leaking is, you know, how do we define a leak? How do we define, for instance, um, what Wikilinks has done, what the Panama Papers have done, and, and sort of come up with a definition of what leaking is or isn't. Right. Well, uh, I would say that a, a leak, quote-unquote, in the nomenclature you're kind of discussing here, would be where an individual or a group takes information that is private, that is hidden. It's something that's inside someone's network uh, or their their email system or whatever, and gives it to either the general public by publishing it on uh, the web, or they take it and they give it to uh, media, you know, newspapers, uh, CNN, whatever. So <clears throat> that would be the the primary difference. Instead of uh, like an open source uh, leak, would just be somebody put this stuff on a web server by accident and it's been uh, spidered by Google and cached. And, you know, you could take it from there. Either someone like me comes along, finds it, and I blog post about it. You know, that's it's still a leak, sort of, but it's not, it's not like I took it and I shopped it to the New York Times. Interesting. So, and then to sort of add to your definition, where do we include something like, the, the Strava sort of posting, the, the sort of the, the output from all the, the Fitbits and, and the sort of exercise trackers. So that wouldn't, in, in your definition, wouldn't be a leak. That would be sort of open source intelligence that has sort of been, that has been posted for public consumption. Yeah, it falls more into that than, uh, than anything else, as far as I can tell from what I have seen. Unless this information was was out there and then was pointed to by some 
secret source that gave it to a new source wants to be kept, you know, <laughs> away from the prying eye of the public or, uh, you know, if, if a nation state or a service decides to, to give it to somebody like, uh, the New York times, uh, you know, it's kind of like, uh, this whole thing with the DNS and Trump back in the day, uh, during the campaign was his server talking to Russia, that whole thing. An anonymous source was running around trying to get people to write about it, you know, trying to get the news services to pick it up. And, um, you know, who was that? Who, who really was that? We, we really don't know. What's the motivation? So then I want to maybe sort of, you know, how do we relate leaking to strategy in the sense of, you know, making something public and classified or something private and classified public? How does that, you know, how do we consider that strategic? What is, you know, in, in a broad view, what what is the impact and what is sort of the reasoning for that? Right. Well, the reasoning and the impact kind of go together. So. If you are some person who works at a company that's doing illegal things, let's say, and you have that evidence, and this is ostensibly how uh, WikiLeaks started, right? They, they said if, if your company or if the government's doing something bad uh, and you know about it, you can give it to us and we can publish it so it becomes you know, public knowledge, comes into the light, can be acted upon by legal bodies to stop it, to look into it. Um, that's, that's one thing. So if you are an individual and you find your company is doing something bad and you want that to stop, but you feel you don't have any power to do so, or the repercussions would be too much, you can post it on WikiLeaks, right? Uh, another motivation might be that you are a nation state actor or you are an intelligence service, uh, which would be nation state actor, but you know, say, say you're a private intelligence service. Um, you can take that information and depending on the content, um, if you want to aim it at destroying the credibility of a company or a, a nation or government, you can do that. Um, and that's the problem with the defining line of, okay, w- what is real? What is not? You're taking information that the, the government or the company or the individual may or may not actually say, yeah, that's mine. Right. Uh, that it's true, that, this, okay, this is real. They may just lie and say it's not, or it may not actually be data that they really had. It might be disinformation, right? So motivation really has to be looked at from the perspective of the, the data that's out, how it was put out, and the vetting that can be done. If you can't prove that the data is real, it's all circumstantial. That's, that's an interesting sort of thing you bring up, is that is that we we generally consider the leaks that have been made public sort of from WikiLinks, from Snowden, from Manning to the Paradise Papers and Panama Papers, they're generally considered to be true. And yet you do bring up this interesting point that, you know, it's only true if somebody endorses it and says, yes, that's indeed our data. But at the same time, you could, you could argue that, that really that's, this is misinformation or disinformation. And so, I mean, in, in, this, in, in that sense, which has more of an impact then? Is it, is it better to, to leak and to be true, or is it better to leak, to give the appearance of leaking and sort of create disinformation? Depends on your goal, right? We just saw in 
2016, the disinformation campaigns uh, and, and, that, and that whole active measures attack relied on both fake and real data, right? Um, the leaks of the DNC emails were a real leak, but if you went to DC leaks instead of WikiLeaks or wherever else, there was some manipulation of the data to mislead for disinformation purposes. So you have to look at every leak as, a, as an analyst would as to, okay, what is it? Where is it supposed to be from? Can it be proven to be real data? Is there any false data salted in there? And, and then look at it from, okay, why are they doing it? What's the motivation of the individuals, the groups that are releasing this data, whether it be true or false? or a little of both. What's the goal here? And so what used to be, you know, I think in all of our minds, um, in a simpler time, uh, what a leak was, say at the beginning of, of WikiLeaks, or even go, let's go back further. Let's go back to the Pentagon Papers. The Pentagon Papers were leaked because the government was lying to the populace. There's a lot of stuff in those papers, and as they started digging really through it, they were finding the, the nuggets of, you know, what the government knew and what the government was saying to the populace, two different things. Now, <clears throat> post-2016, post uh, this disinformation, information warfare that really just sort of exploded last last year, uh, 16, 17, um, can we really know <laughs> unless we do a lot of digging to find out what that information really is? Is it real? Is it not? Um, it took for the uh, Paradise Papers, it took them years of going through that stuff secretly, parsing it out to all of the different news agencies with reporters to vet the information and then make the connections that would, you know, potentially lead to indictments. I think there's been some, I think that a lot of that is, is still being kind of dug through and it gives you context to even um, what happened with the information war by Russia against the United States. You know, the, the monetary connections, this mills, this may still play a part in, in what may or may not happen with uh, the Russia investigation because you're seeing all the Russian oligarch money through Panama you can see those LLC connections. You can see where the money is, where it's going, where it came from. Um, so it's it's a double-edged sword, really. I mean, that's an interesting point you bring up because you're sort of hinting at the role of the mediator to bring information to light. Because I remember <clears throat> the Vice um, documentary. I think it was on the Panama Papers and then um, – the Paradise Papers, it, I mean, it just, it just behind the scenes look was like, to your point, they were, you know, they had reporters and then they had a separate pool of analysts that were going through, you know, doing follow up work, confirming that in, in fact, these, these documents were true. But then I compare this to something like WikiLinks, which really seems like they didn't, you know, they, they don't redact, they just, you know, it's a, it's sort of pump and dump. It's sort of just throw it out there. 
and let you as the individual be the mediator as opposed to trained reporters and trained analysts. So then, you know, what, I, what I'm trying to get at is, you know, where do we place the mediator of leaks in this? Right. Well, the, <clears throat> the media itself, uh, the way that the press is supposed to be is this impartial uh, body that will take that information and, and do the reporting, do the digging, connect the dots, uh, bring us the truth, right? Um, unfortunately, with WikiLeaks, it started off with that notion, but because of Assange and his ego, his control over the organization, the cult of personality that it became, um, it's much more less trustworthy um, in my mind, and I think in many others' minds, um, it became so, you know, quite quickly after some of the things started coming out about the the leaks from Afghanistan and Iraq wars um, that <clears throat> you could see that they wanted to just dump the data without sanitizing that could uh, get innocent people killed. Um, innocent Iraqis uh, were killed in some cases because the leaks just went out without being vetted uh, or sanitized. Um, in today's world with WikiLeaks and their activities, really Assange's um, connections and activities seems to indicate that the Russians have some measure of control over you know, what is supposed to be a an organization that is for the people and supposed to be supporting freedom and and bringing light to everything, right? The the leaking of information where the government is doing wrong um, has turned into a propaganda tool, a disinformation tool. So the mediator, as you say, uh, has to be looked at as well as the, the data as to what's the motivation. Is it a body that is independent and able to collate that data and regurgitate it into a fashion where, you know, the general public can consume it and then they can, if they're more interested, go to the actual source and look through the data. Um, what I don't hear a lot about in a lot of these leaks is, okay, have we looked at the metadata? Have we done the forensics to ensure that this hasn't been tampered with, that it that it does seem to have come from this source? Um, I don't hear that a lot. Uh, in reporters' worlds, they'll, they'll go talk to the government or talk to the military and say, I've got this stuff. Can you confirm or deny that this is your stuff? Um, so you really, when, when, you, when we all start to get leaks, we start to see them online, we should be asking those questions like who put it out? Why do you think it's out? And who, who is holding it? Who's the one that's reporting on it? If it's just something online, well, you can do that yourself, but to, you know, you still have to wonder about the motivation. Interesting. I mean, I think there's to a degree, um, there's something gossipy about links leaks. So for instance, the Panama papers and the, uh, the Paradise Papers are very serious, and what WikiLinks has leaked out, um, at least 
with uh, the Af Afghanistan, um, Iraq, um, Ch the, what Chelsea Manning leaked is very serious. But then we sort of come to the Podesta emails, and they're very, they're very mundane. They're 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 obviously designed to be private, right? And they're they're private communications between people, but it it very very much had this feeling of taking something that isn't classified but private making it public and it had this weird gossipy illicit nature which which then is is, is immediately picked up you know oh and you know look at look at john podesta's risotto recipe or you know it's just it, it's of this nature that it, you know it's supposed to be private but then it's made public and then it has this aura of illicitness and, and gossipiness right well it adds to uh the salacious kind of nature of certain types of leaks. Um, and in the case of the Podesta males, that was clearly an effort of the, the Russians to kind of gin up things. Cause you, like you said, it was pretty pedestrian. I mean, it, it wasn't really, Oh my God, you know, what's he saying? You know, what's in there? Um, even the, even the leaks of the cables, uh, for the uh, sex state type stuff wasn't really that revelatory. There were a few things in there about certain players, but you, you know, the most you got was who didn't like who, you know, what people in the, in the know who were dealing with these other countries, emissaries thought of them, that kind of stuff. It wasn't like, uh, yeah, we got the secret sauce, you know, Mission Impossible, we, we escaped with this, you know, data. No, no, no real smoking guns, per se. Um, so in the, in the case of Podesta, that was just added schadenfreude. Um, when they couldn't come up with something that was really bad, they just sort of threw it out there and said, oh, my God, look at this, you know, and just added to the synergy of <clears throat> Hillary's bad, Podesta's bad, um, and just hoped that it would add to the the fervor that they were building. What is, I mean, this, this might seem silly, but it almost seems like, you know, when you when you take that data and make it public, it, it almost seems it lends itself to conspiracy building because with the Podesta emails, I think, if, if I remember correctly, it's when Pizzagate and Spirit Bowl, Spirit something started. I think Pizzagate ultimately becomes the more sort of infamous of the two conspiracies, but it, it, it seems like when you move data, private data, make it public, give it this aura of illicitness, it, you know, it sort of lends itself to people creating conspiracies. Now, I don't know if that's the fault of, you know, a lack of good mediation or it's simply politically you know, convenient and easy to create a conspiracy, but it really does seem like when you start putting things out into the public, it does loan itself to conspiratorial thinking towards, you know, th this idea that nothing is real and everything is possible sort of conception of the world. Right. Well, uh, I believe that the Podesta emails came out on DC leaks and DC Leaks Guccifer 2.0 was shopping that with uh, 
with, you know, various people, including, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, the, the Nixon guy who worked for uh, Trump as well. Oh, Roger Stone. Stone, yeah. He was talking to Stone on DM. Um, and one of the, the actual quotes was, uh, Podesta's in the barrel next. So you're looking at a source, which is uh, Guccifer II, which is a known Russian operative code name, whatever you want to call it, whoever's running it, and it's probably more than one person, uh, leaking that data and making, trying to make it sensational or trying to up the Schadenfreude, right? Yeah. So this was clearly a tool in the disinformation campaign. So, you know, that's that was all the goal was to create that, that seediness, create that conspiratorial uh, notion in people's minds. And people, the general populace, uh, those who are within the cognitive distance space of, of uh, what I would consider Trumpers to be, We'll take that and and they'll read into it. They'll read whatever they whatever their bent is. They'll read into it. They will not look at it dispassionately as an analyst and say, mm, you know, what's here? What's really? What does it say? Um. So there really it wasn't there was no there there, but they wanted to spin it in order to get people to talk about it and be, you know, jazzed about it in their their space, their echo chamber. That's interesting that you bring that up because it almost seems like <clears throat> that that when you release link leaks that there's almost like a, a targeting process that goes on that that I want to release this data and have it either affect or have it be consumed by this population and I compare that to early WikiLinks and sort of up to the Manning the the State Department cables and it, it almost seems like in the beginning, it was very this shotgun approach. We're going to dump it, you know, and, and the target consumer is everybody. And then when you get to 2016, it seems like there's this refinement of, okay, everybody can consume these link, these leaks, but really it's targeted towards the most motivated and the most likely to sort of, you know, properly hashtag it and, and run with it. Right. Yeah. It's <clears throat> like I said, it's a tool. It, it is a tool for good and ill, you know, depending on your motivation. So, you know, I can, from, from my perspective, from just what I found in the dark net, the, the texts of the Manaforts, right. That, that was dumped on a obscure dark net site for an, an anonymous collective just dumping things. And it had been there a little while. Uh, I looked at it. I downloaded the file and I, I started to vet it. And once it really seemed to check out, I started to write about it. And I combed through the data looking for the interesting bits. And I blogged what I found, you know, all the things that said that this character is not a good guy. Um, there wasn't much else in there that said, he was a great guy anyway, but uh, I put that data out there. But I also put the, the spool itself um, and, and where I got it and said, okay, I found this. This is a leak. They got hacked. Um, and once the media picked up on it, 
the media connected with Manafort and asked him the key question that I did not ask. Uh, he, they asked him if these are their texts. And he said, yeah, the phone got hacked. So he confirmed it. So everything within those texts then becomes the truth, right? He, he didn't, um, he hasn't at all uh, said, no, that's not real. Everything in there that was said was true, according to, it was their texts, they had those conversations. His daughters and whoever else, and he, uh, in that school. So, the leak technically comes from me in the sense that it got published that way. But originally it was an Anon group from Ukraine. And there may be, may be a political motive there because Manafort worked in Ukraine and these people were leaking it saying, this guy's dirty. Take a look. I mean, that sort of brings up an interesting question because, you know, how do you trust? Like, I, I, I know, like, defining trust is kind of difficult, but, I mean, and you sort of touched on it already, but, you know, how do you trust what you're seeing? I mean, you know, the idea that you can manufacture something and then create a context in which to sort of insert that manufacture. You know, it, it almost seems like, you know, I mean, I guess you can't really sort of, it would be difficult to sort of, you know, falsify forensics. It's doable, but it would require technical skill. But, you know, the idea of leaking really speaks to the idea, you know, to this underline, underlining idea of, you know, trusting trust. What, what or who or whatever do you trust? And is this information reliable <laughs> right yeah it's on, on on what i was looking at i did the forensics i did the the metadata you know i checked it out it seemed to be legit when i wrote my blog post i said this is what i did this seems to be legitimate information uh backstopping you know i could prove that these were their phone numbers this is all checking out but i said this is information that i got in the dark net so take that at face value right this, if this is true, then there's some pretty damning things being said uh, about this family by the family in in this leak. Um, once he had said, yep, yeah, you know, this is what happened. Daughter's phone got hacked. Well, then he admits to it. Um, the reality is that if you wanted to, you could probably insert texts into that SQL database um, you know, if you really do high-end forensics on it, you may not be able to say, you know, okay, that's a real one. You know, that's the fake one that got inserted later. Um, but who, who out there, like I said earlier, is doing that? How many, how many sources, you know, these mediators are actually do, taking them to do the forensics to ask somebody like me to look at it and say, yeah, is this legit or not, you know? Technically, this looks legit. Okay, we'll move on to the next thing. Most of the time, it's just just dump stuff online, and the media picks it up, and they run with it. The problem being, circling back to, is this your information, or is this secret information? Is this private information? Some places will just disavow any knowledge of it, because it's going to look bad for them either way, right? So, 
They can disavow it. They can say, no, that's not our stuff. But the people who want to believe it will still believe it. The damage is still done, right? If you're looking to harm the character perception of somebody, you could create, you could gin up data, put it in with some real data, and and get away. You know, even if it's found to be faked stuff later on, the damage is already done in the public mind. This is that's the problem. This is sort of an interesting question that you, you sort of pose, which is, <clears throat> you know, is it is it more worthwhile to insert data, false data, into something that is true, or is it more worthwhile to delete data, delete true data from something that is true? In the sense of, uh, if I remember correctly, when they, when WikiLeaks sort of dumped ser- the Syria files or something, they um, went through and they deleted something that, like, it was a connection between Syria's bank and Russia's. Like, there was an interaction between a Syrian bank and the government of Russia. Um, and it, this was covered by um, Howell. I, I, I forget his, his first name, but um, he had pointed out that, in fact, there was deletion going on, that the mediator, Julian Assange, Wikilinks, was sort of editing this to make, you know, his assumed patron look better or not look worse. So to circle back to my, my original question, I mean, is... Is insertion more more of a valuable tool here, here, or is deletion? Like, is it? I'd say. Oh, go ahead. I'd say they're equal because it depends on what you're trying to do, right? So, the theory is that Russia, his Russian contacts, told Assange, uh, "This data has some bad-looking stuff for us. Delete it." You know, make us look better or make us disappear out of this. Let's shape the information bomb, right? So either or, you're still doing the same kind of thing. If you are putting out egregious bad things into uh, falsehoods into something, it's just as bad as deleting truths, right? It's It depends on your goals. And, and if the goal is to deceive, it's the same, right? Then, I mean, there's this other component of denial of service of that basically you you throw so much information and data at people that they become overwhelmed and they sort of stop processing. Um, the fire hose of propaganda was a rand paper that um, is out there, um, but also like just from my daily interactions on Twitter and then sort of the news constantly being sort of pushed out that it's it's so difficult to sit here and establish what is true, you know, and it, because the rate of data coming at you is so quick and so fast that, you know, that it sort of disables your ability to mediate and to sort of say, well, this is true. I've confirmed it, but this is false. So I'm going to ignore it. Right. Yeah, it's it's as individuals, it's it's really hard to parse through the volumes of information that you're getting, the constant stream of data, uh, <laughs> almost yelling at us in a way. I mean, Twitter being, I mean, look at it's just a fire hose of of different 
people's notions. Uh, how many times have you clicked on retweet of something and then later on somebody said, yeah, by the way, I looked at Snopes and that's wrong. You know, I care to admit to. <laughs> right. You know, it, it, you can't, we've reached a point with our social media uh, and the media in general where there's no way we can backstop everything we see and everything we like. If we did, we'd spend half our time just going to different sources because you can't just go to Wikipedia because anybody can add, you know, add that stuff or delete that stuff, right? It's a constant battle. So you get, like in, in reporting, three sources, right? You get three confirmed sources, then you can run with it. Kind of got to do that with now with your with whatever you're seeing, right? It's crazy. Yeah. So I mean, it, I want to maybe um, take a sidestep and discuss sort of the role of ideology in leaking, because doing the research for the show, you know, we started with WikiLinks. Sort of the earliest incan- incarnation of, of WikiLinks was, you know, we are we are bringing to light what is in the dark and you know, there was a, a justice argument inherent to what they were saying, that at least the early um, incarnation. And then you have, you know, Snowden and Chelsea Manning that also seemed sort of ideologically driven, that they were solving for some sort of injustice or some sort of violation of, of human rights. And then it's almost same with the Panama and Paradise Papers, that that it's it's all about ideology and then a political aim, sort of writing what is wrong. So my, my my question to you is, I mean, how much does ideology sort of factor in to to leaking and, and to, to a leaker's sort of intentions, original intentions? Mm. Well, <clears throat> I would I would uh, I'd go back to the real the first big leak for me, was the Pentagon Papers. Um, The ideology there was Daniel was in the middle of the whole thing. He he was doing the work, putting together the the papers, you know, some of the information. And uh, he saw that we were being lied to and that ethically for him, was wrong for the government to do. So he did what he did. Some might go a little further and try to put a more psychological um, framework to this as well. You know, what's your, what, do you, what are your personal goals of doing this, right? What's the psychology behind it? Uh, in espionage, you have, uh, you know, mice, uh, the reasons why somebody's going to spy for you, right? So you, you you judge them as to how you can approach them to get them to spy. Is it money? Is it power? Is it feeling like you're not respected? That kind of stuff. So you have that aspect as well. And some people had said, you know, uh, Daniel was kind of egotistical and there was that component as well. But let's just lay it on the face of, you saw what was wrong. You saw the government doing it whole whole cloth, and decided to get the truth out there. Right? Okay, that's Pentagon Papers. Um, you had 
as well, the, the whole thing with uh, Nixon and Watergate, the 70s as well. So you see, you see that the government's been lying to you, right? Let's flash forward to the 1990s, late 80s, 90s. Um, the X-Files. The X-Files was a zeitgeist because people picked up on that idea that the government is lying to you. The truth is out there, right? It was a TV show. But look at the same time frame. You got Art Bell on the radio talking about conspiracies and UFOs and all that stuff. Pretty popular. So there's this whole thing. They even had him on the X-Files <laughs> as a character. So you've got this conspiratorial thing going on where a lot of people believe that the government's lying to you, that there's lizard aliens and there's Illuminati and all that stuff. But back in the 90s, it wasn't as uh, rampant as you fast forward to 2001 to now where you've got Alex Jones and his crazy, crazy, crazy conspiracies that people eat up, right? So you've got all of that. Just take that as an underlying flow of the psyche of at least, let's just say, America, right? Leading up to Trump with conspiracies. It's all about conspiracy for him. Uh, climate change. It's a Chinese conspiracy. He's a friend of Alex Jones. He's putting out all kinds of conspiracies, even today on Twitter. You know, Russia, Russia thing, it's all about Hillary and uranium. Kaka. You know, it's all just spinning tails. Now you take that, that component of leaking information. What if I create a database of information that looks, passes the smell test up to a point that it looks like real government information and I want to dump it that supports, you know, this Russia thing. Let's, let's go with like the Nunez memo. That's an analogous leak, quote-unquote, right? They got it declassified. But what, what did it really mean? It, it was a nothing burger, but it's feeding the base. It's feeding the people who have that, that bent. So when you talk about leaks, for me, once again, it's just about the, the agenda of the person leaking it and then the agenda of the people mediating it and then the agenda of every person reading it. Holy crap. You know, to your point, it, it just it reminds me of, I think somebody was was sort of trolling on Twitter, and they they put out a they edited a, a Kanye West music video and then build it as the P tape, right? The infamous yep. P tape, and and it it just blew my mind that that the first tweet was the troll tweet, right? And it had right. maybe. Ten upwards of thousands of retweets and favorites, and then the rest of the thread, he basically explains how he trolled. Like, no, this is just an edited Kanye West video. I just threw some graphics on it, but everybody retweeted it. Everybody thought it was the real PT. And and to your point, it, I mean, it, it almost seems like the leaker, the mediator, and the ultimate sort of consumer are all sort of part of this sort of this act of, you know, you know, the consumer sees what he wants to see and the mediator sort of provides, provides that. Whether, whether, yeah. whether it's true or not, it, it, 
maybe could be irrelevant. Um, yep. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it all becomes very philosophical. I mean, you're going to have to get deep, deep dive into philosophy in a way to kind of come up to come to grips with all of it. And, uh, you know, and if, okay, so you got a real dump and, and it's real data, you know, like Snowden stuff, um, being parsed out. Uh, what, what really came of all that? Have we had substantive change? If anything, that fed the cognitive dissonance of all the people who were just saying, Oh my God, the government's listening to everything we do. When the reality is maybe not, you know, yeah, the, the capacity's there. It's kind of scary. If an individual has the power to do so and orders other people below them to do something, potentially you could be listened to illegally. But what are you going to do about it? What can you do about it? I mean, I think I think with the Snowden leaks, it was the argument is that Russia has been making this argument, has been pushing this idea forward of. Um, I'm sort of butchering it, but the idea of a national internet as opposed to all nation states being interconnected. And, um, I mean, this, this thesis sort of puts a, a lot of intention on, on Snowden's shoulders, but it was the idea that if you reveal U.S. surveillance, that you can begin to politically sort of contract or create a narrative to to contract the U.S.'s ability to run this, you know, level and depth of surveillance. But to your point, I mean, have we actually seen any change? Have we seen any sort of alteration in behavior? I don't, you know, I'm not aware of or, you know, well, we don't know. In, in the case of the Snowden leaks and what you just talked about, they've used that as their, their aegis to forward their own agenda of balkanizing the internet. So they've got SORM, uh, SORM version three, that is, uh, you know, controlling their environment, right? They're working with China. They signed a deal. So they are sharing information somewhat on attacks, but they're also sharing um, the, the actual technologies in some cases. So SORM is going to have more of the great firewall technology and, and China will have more of the SORM technology. But the idea is at the core, both countries want to stop the hegemony of the United States on the Internet. So Snowden's leaks were the perfect tool to do that and to get more buy-off from other countries that may feel likewise, right? Yes. So, I mean, that, that sort of brings us to my last question, which is, can you wage information warfare now without leaks? Because, at, at, you know, looking at you know, circling back to my original sort of the introduction, 2008 to 2018 has has not only been a banner decade for elites, but also a banner decade for sort of cyber um, cybersecurity and evolution in cybersecurity, you know, going from, you know, in 2008, 2009, we had Stuxnet, we had Dooku, we had Flame, and then we, we end the decade with sort of information warfare coming back and sort of um, showing, you know, becoming very public how, how you can attack, you know, not you, you can attack nation states through social media and through public media. So to for my original question, you know, can you wage information warfare nowadays without leaks? 
it depends on the the level or the scale that you want to carry out that information war on. So let's just, you know, you were talking about Flame and Dooku earlier on, and I would say, okay, now we're circling back to not Petya to some of the North Korean attacks using uh, ransomware or cryptors or even wipers, right? So those types of warfare acts are not necessarily going to need a disinformation component or a a leak component, right? Um, Unless they wanted to do that kind of damage. So you've got, you know, like modules. Let's just put it into a modular kind of sense of information warfare. So if I just want to strike out, cause fear, cause financial damage to uh, a government or a company, I could release uh, like NotPetya in Ukraine, if I'm Russia, and destroy uh, networks, destroy the usefulness of those networks, the, the usefulness of the data that is now destroyed or encrypted or, you know, even down to the point of getting hard drives to kind of eat themselves, right? Um, it causes that damage. It causes the fear. It causes the financial damage. Now, recently, there was talk about Napetya, and uh, once you let that genie out of the bottle, it didn't just hit Ukraine because the Internet is the Internet. It's connected everywhere, right? So this thing escaped the bottle, and it hit uh, in the U.K., it hit, you know, Maersk, all these other places, and it's become, to some, the the most financially destructive um, piece of malware yet because it ran around with Eternal Blue and did its thing. Um, There was no need for a leaking of information on that one. So it all depends on your goals. You know, what does your operation want to do? So I think, you know, if it's an individual looking to leak something, that's what's their goal. If it's somebody who's been wronged by a company, they're going to, if they, if they have the access, they buy the access, whatever, they're going to release what's damaging to that, that person or entity that they want to take down uh, and cause pain to, or maybe hopefully justice to prevail. If you are a nation state and you want to attack the, the American election system, you're going to use leaks. You're going to use hacking to, to get leaks and um, that's your goal. That's your your aegis right there is to do that kind of damage to sow um, chaos. And that's what they did. So really, if you look at the Gerasimov doctrine and some of the other Russian uh, information warfare uh, books, you really get a sense of, okay, you can pick and choose. It depends on what your goal is at the end of it. And it's all laying layer upon layer. So if you want to commit an all-out warfare war on somebody, you could use all those tools. That's interesting because it really, I mean that, that's really interesting because it seems like like there's this division in infosec where you you can attack a trust network, right, or you can sort of attack a, a network of computers, and you know they both have different effects but it almost seems like when you attack a trust network 
Yeah, yeah, it does require a little more political science data, a little more historical data, but it almost seems like that when you attack trust, something that's so fundamental, you really are, you know, it has the potential for destruction that is that is pretty pretty huge. I mean, to go back to your point, like, you know, the difference between, you know, not Petya attacking FedEx and causing $400 million in damage, you know, FedEx can... You know, they can rebuild their systems, they can recoup that $400 million, but attacking the U.S. election system seems a little more, the damage seems a little more longer lasting and, little, and maybe even deeper, you know, right. attacking an institution. Right. Well, you know, attacking an institution like elections. Okay. So they, they did hack uh, election systems where the roles for individuals are in states, right? The, the, the government or the state governments have admitted at least, what, 21 of them, something like that? I don't know. I don't forget the count, but a bunch of them have admitted that their systems were breached. We don't know how far. We don't know what the persistence is, right, or was. Are they still in those systems? We don't know. But the fact that they, they got into those systems um, and that knowledge that, it did happen is out. Does that mean that the people who vote, who know that these systems have been compromised and if they're smart enough to think maybe still compromised, um, would they, would their votes, would they not vote because of that? Are they going to change their behavior in some way? Um, and, and alternatively back to the more technical side. So I hack into the, the registries um, the roles and I change just like where you live. If you show up as an individual and you present your, your ID and it says you live at, you know, one, two, three street, but on the rolls, it says you live at three to one street. Potentially you can't vote that day because that role has been changed. You're degrading not only the trust in the system, but this, you're subverting the system itself to disallow votes. I mean, by the same token, I mean, a lot of voter rolls are, they're a matter of public, public knowledge. So, you know, in, in Colorado, you can, you can look up who is active, who is not, and, and sort of right. do that. And so it, it almost seems like, you know, you could also use the sort of openness of the system against it because, you know, um, there was an article in 2600 where somebody was able to just use Facebook to sort of build a database of people based on neighborhoods and like locations. And so in, in my mind, I was thinking, well, if you pair that with a voter, a public voter database, Facebook, and then any other open source intelligence, you can sort of begin to target specific people. So, right. I, mean, I mean, there's so many layers of trust that it almost seems like it's just, it's almost horrifying to think about, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, no, really, um, it's, it, we are open, an open society. We tend not to think about this information uh, being in the open or not as, as privacy freakish as maybe some of us who are in the security field are. And we understand the, the implications, so the general populace maybe doesn't. And uh, it's fairly easy to make these attacks. 
Um, and, and frankly, in, in the Analytica uh, stuff that we're, you know, eventually, hopefully going to hear about, uh, the targeting of voters for Trump and, and states and everything else, um, that all that open source information is being used, right? And it's scary. Yeah, I mean, it, that sort of blows my mind because we're we're discussing leaks as sort of the movement of, of, of data that's private and classified to public, but at the same time, when the Strava sort of leaks, not the Strava map, I should say, it's not a leak, it's a map that came out, and it was just, it was sort of very mind-blowing to me because... A lot of, first of all, I thought people's OPSEC would be a lot better than I gave them credit for. And then, you know, bases that should not exist. And then, oh, look at that faint, you know, faint outline of somebody running around the base doing their, their morning PT. And it's just like, this is just, it just blew my mind. Like, you know, it's even, even if you're in a security tight situation, it's, the potential for open source leaks and open source data to be there is is still there. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it's even, even people in the field uh, make mistakes. They don't think about it. You don't think that when you buy the, the band, right. And you're, you're tracking your, your health information per se, you know, your, your reps and everything else. um, You're not necessarily thinking that that is okay. Where's that going? Is that going to an S3 bucket somewhere that, I can just Google up because they haven't done the security properly to, you know, keep it out of other people's hands. You know, it, it just doesn't occur to people. And if you lived like that, if you looked at everything we do with any technical, you know, piece of data or just going out and buying something with a credit card, you, you lose your mind. Wow. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's kind of mind blowing. Like it just, like, I don't know, it just the more I, I dig into OSINT and it's just like, wow, just like, you know, it's you work in an industry where it puts an emphasis on, you know, OPSEC, on security, on, you know, being secret. And then, you know, 10 minutes on Google and to your point, you're, you know, you found a SW bucket, you know, an S3 bucket, an AWS bucket. And it's, oh, all the legal filings for this financial company. And it's right, right there. <laughs> um, yep. But anyway, um, so I think we've gone for about 50 minutes, almost to an hour. So I think it's a good place. We've covered a lot and it's a good place to stop. So I'm going to ask you the last question, which is, you know, give us something to think about, to mull on and to, to sort of, you know, think about, um, you know, before we go for the day. Well, in in considering leaks and uh, their meanings or their uses, I would heed you all to consider the next, this year, because we will see leaks. We will see disinformation just leading up to the elections for Senate and House, right? The, all it, we've heard, from the IC, all the directors of the IC uh, groups this week, this last week, said, yep, they're, they're already spinning up. Russians are spinning up, and they're going to attack this cycle. So that means more social media attacks, more potential leaks of God knows whose emails, uh, 
disinformation campaigns, trolling, all of it. Um, we just saw the uh, indic- indictment from uh, Mueller on the 13 individuals and the uh, troll farm and all of that data that's in there. I'm currently kind of parsing through that, trying to see if there's anything else I can latch on to. Uh, but Daily Beast already has an article on what seems to be an analogous uh, site that's been spun up for like another troll farm. And it's on a .ru email address that it was set up. It was originally a U.S. user who had the site. Now suddenly it's transferred ownership into this .ru and nothing of it on the site makes you think that it's Russian. <laughs> and, and it's all about controlling your social media, setting up accounts, um, all that. So it's, it's in a perfect place to spin up more disinformation trolls and cause all the chaos yet again. So consider all this stuff as you see the news every day, uh, or if you're on Twitter and you see these crazy trolls spin up uh, with their MAGA or whatever else to destroy the potential for uh, this candidate or another. Uh, Always be wary of what you're reading and try to try to backstop stuff go to snopes do a little googling um i know it's hard but unfortunately today this is the world we live in well thank you so much for being a guest on the show thank you good time